Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the principle of birth control. You gotta keep them separated. It's funny, I remember calling out last week that I was going to put a show out that was entirely unedited. And this one, I'm afraid, is going to probably be heavily edited because um, I'm dealing with the day-to-day business of life. There may be a lot of ambient sound uh, banging and you know, people dragging stuff up and down stairs. We'll see how I do from a sound perspective. The other thing I did last week was kind of put a reminder out about the existence of uh, the Inappropriate Conversations page on Facebook and what up until now has been a very recent presence for me on Twitter. And I believe I want to start going back to that look at Facebook, because if you go back to Facebook postings that I've stuck on the Inappropriate Conversations page, as far back as maybe the 10th of March or even a little bit sooner than that, I've been making reference to things that I've been doing, looking at preparing myself for today's topic, because although I've wanted all along to come back to the concept of birth control as a specific subset of something I hit uh, in the sex education inappropriate conversation, way down in the, in the teens, I believe, I wanted to hit that again. In that particular um, show, I talked about how important contraception was as a concept for me as a very young kid learning about the birds and the bees and that the existence of contraception, rather than feeling like I was free to go on a you know sexual rampage because I was safe from the risk of getting somebody pregnant in an unintended way or catching the sexually transmitted diseases that we knew about back then, which, you know, in some ways are far less uh, pernicious than the ones we know about today. Instead, what it did was it said, hey, I've got a certain level of responsibility here. There's uh, an awareness of cause and effect is the way I would put it. There was you know, placed in front of me that I didn't have any knowledge of before. And that without that appreciation of rights and responsibilities and cause and effect, I might have behaved very differently when I was in my late teens and 20s. It's hard to say. But knowing that I was going to hit this topic again and doing some reading about it, I've got posts up, uh, a clip that I hope to play a little bit from, from a group called the Reformed Horrors. Uh, They've got a song called Slut, or I'm a Slut, which is a response to Rush Limbaugh. And his show, where he attacked an otherwise private citizen who um, committed the only mistake, if you want to call it that, the only thing that might have compromised her status as a private citizen was responding to an invitation to testify before Congress. And, uh, you know, my perspective on that issue, and I won't go into this, this is not a show about Limbaugh, but my perspective on that issue is that you do not lose your, your status as a private citizen simply because you've written a letter to your congressman or even testified before Congress. And you have to do something beyond that, beyond your constitutional rights, <laughs> to inject yourself into an issue of public controversy. And you know, with you know, Rush Limbaugh on his show, treating this individual as if she was the equivalent of a celebrity or an elected official, huge mistake. Just a fundamental misunderstanding of the principles of mass communications law. So you see how the uh, the response to Limbaugh and Limbaugh's response to 
the Georgetown University student who testified before Congress, all kind of ties together there. But I also found very interesting articles, one um, kind of detailing the politics of Rick Santorum from an anti-abortion perspective and how his policies, his own current political policies, could very well have led to a doctor being forced to allow his wife to die, die pre-childbirth, because his lack of exceptions for health or his attitude toward health exceptions might have ruled out medical treatment that has, that has been administered inside his own family, simply to call that out for the hypocrisy that it you know, so obviously is. There are other points that I'd want to get to. I'm going to be kind of all over the map here, but just to call your attention to a few articles that are out there in inappropriate conversations. Now, some of these come from clearly left-leading websites, uh, and I'm not, you know, again, I don't consider myself to be either right or left, but if the left wing of American politics gets something extremely wrong, I'm going to come off to a lot of folks as an arch-conservative. And guess what? When the right wing of American politics gets some things so fundamentally wrong, well, I'm more likely to find the responses that mean something to me on the left side of the political spectrum. So I'm not making an advocacy position for any of the websites that I've linked to or any of the writers that are cited there. I'm simply saying they've got something to say about this particular issue. And on this particular point, theirs are the points of view that I think need to be getting considered. Let me just rattle through a few headlines here because I think that this is an area where I may be all over the map because the issue is all over the map. I reject the idea that it can be stated as simply and succinctly as a GOP war on women's health. It's not that I'm antagonistic toward that point of view. I just find it to be an oversimplification that uh, to me, this is not a Democrat, good Republican, bad. They're both bad. This isn't, you know, the, the left wing's absolutist position is correct and the right wing's absolutist position is wrong. No, we need to have an objective point of view. Now, that objective point of view on this particular issue may look at, you know, nine or 10 particular points out there and find that the GOP candidates are wrong 95% of the time. It doesn't mean they're always wrong. And it doesn't mean that being so consistently wrong in their strategy um, can be boiled down to a war on women's health. So again, I don't argue that the GOP has got a a horrifically short-sighted and monstrously ineffective strategy here, that if it were to be effective, would represent the, you know, perhaps the single greatest attack on women's health in my lifetime. So I don't take this lightly. For example, just very recently to when I'm recording, Kansas is passing a law or considering a law. In each case, because of the time involved, it's unclear from the articles I'm reading whether or not the laws are proposed or already passed. It's enough that the states are even talking about it. So let's say you've got an area of dubious science, um, a link, an alleged link between abortion and, and breast cancer that has been debated by scientists for, you know, at least the last 30 or 40 years. And that link is not what I would describe as being proven. It is nothing more than um, a, an almost wishful hypothesis among people who consider themselves to be pro-life. And yet Kansas has, re has introduced a bill that they're debating at the legislative level that would force doctors to report this dubious science as if it were fact, that every woman, in essence, must be told something's true that has not been proven true, because telling her this, quote unquote, potential truth, half truth, lie, depending on how you look at it, serves some sort of abortion preventing legislative goal. 
having doctors lie to patients. In other words, how could this possibly be viewed as good? Here's another one. The Let Women Die Bill. House Republicans at the national level passed a bill that would allow hospitals to receive federal funds to deny patients access to abortion procedures, even if such a procedure was necessary to save a woman's life. In effect, finding a way to financially reward hospitals for denying life-saving health care. I think we know that recently Republican Congressman Daniel Issa had chaired a hearing on Obama's health plan to provide contraceptive coverage to women, but uh, blocked all testimony from any women health advocates, arguing that the plan to provide contraceptive coverage to women was not a women's issue. It was, it was somehow not a women's issue. In a bill to prevent taxpayer funding for abortion, House Republicans have tried to redefine rape as, quote, forcible rape only. In other words, they're interested in excluding statutory rape or women who were um, drugged, you know, given roofies or verbally threatened or molested in some way. So you have the, the what I consider to be the famous case. If you've not heard about the case of the nine-year-old girl in Brazil, this is an example. Uh, a nine-year-old girl molested by her uncle, uh, raped by her uncle, uh, to the surprise of everybody, perhaps especially her uncle, got pregnant with twins and the doctor said, hey, there's really is very little chance um, that she's going to be able to survive this. She was not of an age of, or a level of maturity. Um, it could not possibly be said that it was God intended for her to have these kids, right? And, uh, it, you know, because of the nature of Catholicism in Brazil, it developed into a huge issue. But here, this bill that was proposed by House Republicans would have excluded a nine-year-old girl in the United States of America, raped in similar circumstances where no one's arguing that the crime of, of incest and statutory rape had occurred, but there might be some question about whether or not these, this particular set of Republican legislators or a question about whether this particular set of Republican political candidates would be open to the idea of providing a uh, rape exception uh, where abortion would be quote unquote permitted I get upset enough when we're talking about questions of whether abortion should be permitted. Uh, to me, this is, again, the government not having a say that should supersede what a doctor says. But now we're beginning to talk about whether or not birth control should be, quote-unquote, permitted. The difference between the politics of the early 1980s, because some people may think, well, you know, you look at candidates like Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum, and to a degree, Mitt Romney, and you say, well, these Republican presidential candidates are the same as Reagan. Yeah, they're really not the same as Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan did attempt to nominate a judge to the Supreme Court who found himself in controversial hearings for his approval of his appointment. And part of that was related to birth control, but not all of it. It was a subset. Um, Reagan's point of view I think would, would come across as centrist or potentially even borderline liberal compared to some, some of the people out there today. I have a hard time imagining Ronald Reagan supporting the laws that have passed in Virginia and Texas and elsewhere that would force women to have an unwanted, unnecessary, invasive vaginal ultrasound probe as a um, blockade step, an essential, necessary, legislated step before they could be permitted to have an abortion. I read a stunning article from a doctor. Let me see if I can find 
the uh, at least the link or the name of this particular article, where the doctor basically said, hey, the time for civil disobedience among doctors is prob- probably here, because it certainly doesn't make sense that a doctor should feel like uh, he is in some ways being forced to perform unnecessary medical procedures on his patients against their will. And at what point will the medical community step up? Because so far, all we've heard from the medical community on these issues related to women's reproductive services is financial. They don't think they should have to pay for this. They don't think they should have to support that or quote unquote moral. I promise I will today get to the morality question. But first, in some ways related to the morality question, here's sort of a, a guest post from a doctor on a whatever blog is uh, taunting the tauntable since 1998, John Scalzi, proprietor. But John Scalzi is not the writer of this. He introduces right up front that the writer of this is a, is a friend or acquaintance of his who is a doctor, a physician, but for reasons that perhaps should seem obvious to us now, the physician feels the need, the driving need to uh, keep his identity secret, that he is taking a significant risk by taking a stand that is perhaps contrary to his own um, hospital slash clinic, but also is potentially going to run contrary to the power and might of the United States government. This uh, blog is found at whatever.scalzi.com, S-C-A-L-Z-I, and the article was published on March 20th, 2012. Guest post a doctor on transvaginal ultrasounds. Where is the physician outrage? I'm speaking, of course, about the required transvaginal ultrasound thing that seems to be the flavor of the month in politics. I do not care what your personal politics are. I think we can agree that my right to swing my fist ends where your face begins. I do not feel that it is reactionary or even inaccurate to describe an unwanted, non-indicated transvaginal ultrasound as rape. If I insert any object into any orifice without informed consent, it is rape. And coercion of any kind negates consent, informed or otherwise. In all the discussion and all the outrage and all the Doonesbury comics, I find it interesting that physicians are relatively silent. After all, it's our hands as physicians that will supposedly be used to insert medical equipment, tools of healing, for the sake of all that is good and holy, into the vaginas of coerced women. Fellow physicians, once again, we are being used as tools to screw people over. This time it's the politicians who want to use us to implement their morally reprehensible legislation. They want to use our ultrasound machines to invade women's bodies. They want our hands to be at the controls. Coerced and invaded women, you have a problem with that? Blame us evil doctors. We are such deliciously silent scapegoats. So what is his response? It says it's our responsibility, as always, to protect our patients from things that would harm them. Therefore, as physicians, it is our duty to refuse to perform a medical procedure that is not medically indicated. Any medical procedure, whatever the pseudo-justification. He recommends a handful of things, a handful of things doctors can do. And this, to me, is revolutionary. I have never heard a doctor speak up on this issue before. Not in this way. Number one, just don't comply. Number two, reinforce patient autonomy. 
Number three, if you are forced to document a non-indicated transvaginal ultrasound because of this legislation, document that the patient refused the procedure or that it was not medically indicated because both of those are probably true. Number four, if you are forced to enter an image of an ultrasound itself into the patient chart, ultrasound the bed sheets or enter a picture with a comment of poor acoustic window. If you really are gutsy, enter a comment of poor acoustic window plus I'm not a rapist. Number five, do anything else you can think of in order to protect your patients and the integrity of the medical profession in that order. So let me leave his article. There's more well worth reading. But he's got, he's got two things he cited here, but there probably is a third. One is the rule that the doctor do no harm and protect his patients. Second is the integrity of the medical profession. And third is supporting and defending the laws of the state in which you live and the government in which you live. And I think I've got the order right there, too. In fact, that number three probably isn't even number three. If you're a doctor, if you want to deem to call yourself a physician, if you want to use the same terminology to describe yourself that some in the New Testament have used to describe Jesus Christ for crying out loud, you better put your patients first. You better put the integrity of the medical profession second. You better put your own conscience third and get around to whether or not you want to comply with a law like this, maybe not even in the top five. So these are the kinds of articles that are available on the Inappropriate Conversations page in, on Facebook. And there's, there's more, because these are the things that have been milling around in my head as I've been thinking through the issue of, well, what are even the principles of birth control here? What in the world are we arguing about? For decades, and by decades, I mean going back to World War II, the Republican Party itself had a well-informed and, and a position that I politically supported that said that birth control is a good and proper and necessary thing. It's you know part of our Western industrialized society. Now, I would understand if you were a Muslim having a different attitude about it. But when you come to the United States of America, you probably know that you're in the minority on this particular issue. And conservatives are so often comfortable saying the very thing that I've just said. You know, you've come to America, get used to it. So what happened inside the Republican Party that changed people who were already, quote unquote, in America, who weren't immigrants bringing a different set of values, but were people who, you know, either they personally or their ancestors, their parents and their grandparents, if they came from a Republican family that has always voted Republican, people who voted for the kinds of Republicans who had the same attitude that I'm expressing today about the issue of birth control. It should be available, and it should be safe. Now, there is a question of who's paying for it. But I want to hit the question of who's paying for it in just a minute. And I want to do so from a much broader perspective than looking at solely from the, the question of what the power of the government is. I understand a small government, economic conservative, feeling like this is a mandate that shouldn't exist, that the U.S. government shouldn't be insinuating itself into health care as if it's not already there, and shouldn't be telling you know, businesses and companies what to do. But before I get to the question of you know, how, how that makes sense and, and how should we address that particular issue, because to me, the bigger question is, does it make sense that healthcare is being provided or perhaps rationed by employers? Should a woman who works for a company have to explain to the company she works for what her intentions are sexually before she can 
be given medical treatment or be given coverage or access to medical treatment. Does that make sense at all? Um, and I think it probably does not. I, I believe that a majority, perhaps not the Catholic hospitals, I don't know that, but it wouldn't surprise me if a majority, a majority of the companies that are complaining about whether they should be covering contraceptive care for women, how many of those cover vasectomies for men? And is there a double standard here? And should that double standard cause us a great deal of embarrassment? Now, I've got an open mind, and I'm not a doctor. I don't presume to have anything to do with medicine. I'm really the only member of my immediate family who hasn't worked in a hospital before. So you you put my family out on a chart, and I'm the last person who should be addressing this issue. But the reality is, there may be a solid medical reason to perform a vasectomy that has nothing to do with either cancer or birth control. I'm just not familiar with what it is. It is much easier to find medical reasons to prescribe contraception and for any employer, regardless of their religious affiliation, to put a barrier between a patient and her doctor's recommended care that forces that woman to promise her employer she's not planning to have sex with anybody is outrageous and ridiculous. It would be more outrageous and ridiculous if the notion that birth control is somehow condemned by the church didn't make sense. That's where we're going to go next. We're going to answer the question of what the Bible says about birth control, how we should interpret what the Bible says about birth control, and what should we do as conservative Christians if the view of the church, quote-unquote, is out of step with the Bible. Dan Carlin common sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. There will be some who are ardent defenders of the Catholic tradition of being opposed to birth control. And I'm not singling out the Roman Catholic Church here. It's just enough to say that there aren't any uniquely different perspectives among conservative Protestants. Even the most fundamentalist right-wing conservative Protestants essentially are taking their lead and the precedent for their points of view from the Catholic Church. Now, the Church will tell you that there are numerous citations of how, how Jesus loves the little children and how God you know, knew who Jeremiah was before Jeremiah was even conceived, and how all of us as human beings are uniquely created in God's image who stitched us together in the womb. There are numerous examples of God's love for children and his role in the process of creation. But truly, the opposition to birth control comes from one significant passage alone. Because just because God is involved in the process of stitching somebody together inside the womb— doesn't mean that God's opposed to birth control. My God is more powerful than a fundamentalist right-wing Christian because my God is not hampered even by the most effective possible types of birth control. If you haven't heard uh, the very old inappropriate conversation, number 14, I believe, sex education, the Protestant way, then, not now, 
I talk a little bit about what the statistics were when I was a kid about the effectiveness of birth control. And although statistics, I'm sure, have changed with advances in medical science, in prophylactic care, they're never going to be perfect. There's never going to be 100% effective. So does your all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, always-present God have the inability to function inside that fraction of a percent? Tell you what, if my God wants a child to be born, that child's going to get born. And that means that if my God wants that child to be conceived, that child is going to be conceived. But that's the difference between somebody who has placed his faith in God and somebody who has placed his faith in a man or a set of men who have been given the dubious power of being able to interpret God's will on behalf of others, often in ways that are inconsistent with Scripture. So let's go to Scripture. Genesis chapter 38, starting with verse 6. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order to not give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Even if you are relatively unfamiliar with the Bible, you have probably heard the name Onan before. We often hear this passage cited, in fact, as the sin of Onanism. And Onanism is alternately, depending on, I guess, the needs of the person who's making a moral prescription on behalf of society, alternately described as a prohibition against masturbation and a prohibition against the withdrawal method of birth control. Now, a couple of things. Nothing in this passage has anything to do with masturbation. So the fact that onanism as a coin, as a catchphrase, is viewed as being synonymous with masturbation is among the most ridiculous misinterpretations of the Bible of all time. But also, I don't believe it has anything to do necessarily with the withdrawal method of birth control. And it certainly doesn't have anything to do with other methods of birth control. And I find it particularly ironic that the Roman Catholic Church, among all the methods of birth control ever practiced in human history, is least offended by the rhythm method and the withdrawal method. When the scripture that they might cite as God's justification for this human rule that's been put in place for thousands of years is actually the withdrawal method of birth control. No, Onan was not punished by God for the sin of practicing birth control. He was punished by God for the disobedience of not impregnating his sister-in-law as Levitical law said he should. Now let's unpack that just a little bit. What's this all about? Because we have, again, close to 1,500 years of human history has been defined by a misinterpretation of this particular section of the book of Genesis. I can't speak for whether it's been misinterpreted by Jews. I'm only speaking now directly toward the Roman Catholic Church and all of their current fundamentalist imitators of every stripe, Christian and non-Christian, and inside the realm of Christianity, Protestant and Catholic. This is what it comes down to. You are dealing in the book of Genesis with, well, truthfully, the Genesis of the Hebrew people. 
and God's mandate at the time was to create as much childbirth as humanly possible. And you're dealing with an era where, you know, sudden death and death at a young age was not that unusual. You might have a man get married to a wife and, and die in some accident or of some disease or by some other means before having children. And since the goal was to create a population as quickly as possible to become a chosen people, it was a religious mandate to have kids. And therefore, if your brother died before he had any kids, it was not just um, okay, because in our current society, I suspect this would not be okay. It was, you know, a mandate that you have sex with your brother's wife, have sex with your sister-in-law, so that you can generate children on his behalf. You can, in effect, through her, carry on his bloodline or his family line. So the sin of onanism was refusing to comply with that rule of creating explosive, uncontrolled population growth. Now, I don't believe that anybody scientifically believes we're in a place in human history where explosive, uncontrolled population growth is a good idea. There may be people out there who think that it's not as bad an idea as some. There may be some people who are neutral about it. think it's probably okay either way. But there's a lot more people who would tell you that sudden explosive population growth is not a good idea. In our current standards, speaking as an American, this would be a fairly reprehensible thing for a brother-in-law to say to his sister-in-law within a few days of her losing her husband to approach a widow and suggest that because she never had any kids, now's the time for us to have, you know, very um, strictly religious um, sort of teleological sex, sex only for the purpose of having a kid. Um, close your eyes. Don't look. Don't get excited. Whatever. Even that idea seems to me like the strangest thing in the world for anybody who calls themselves part of the religious right to be advocating. So, this is a passage of scripture which does not serve that purpose in any way whatsoever. And in fact, I would make the argument that this individual um, having sex with his sister-in-law and her conceding to it for the purposes of having the child and obeying Levitical law to have betrayed her is rape. What we have here is God taking violent, decisive retribution against this man for being a rapist. I've already spoken about the question of rape earlier with regard to that doctor's comment back to whether he should be forced to perform an unnecessary medical procedure on a woman where the primary goal of these state legislatures in Virginia and Texas and elsewhere seems to be humiliation and fear mongering, not any medical purpose. Now, someone who is very stridently pro-life would probably say, no, there's a there's a medical purpose there, Greg, you're missing the point. The patient is not the woman. The patient is the child. Never mind the fact that we're covering under insurance the woman and not the child. Never mind the fact that the woman has a citizenship and a right to speak that we don't confer to the child. But even then, the logic is the same logic that I talked about in the two-part agreements about abortion episode. The notion is that, well, this woman just doesn't know what she's doing. Because she's making a decision related to abortion that I disagree with, she must be ignorant. And if she won't listen to the protesters outside the clinic, if she won't go to my favorite pro-life websites, then maybe I can force the doctor to show her an ultrasound. And if she won't look at the ultrasound that can be formed you know, externally, then we'll have the doctor stick something inside her and do an ultrasound that way. 
And if she refuses to look, we're going to write a law that makes the doctor describe to her what he's seeing. The reality here, people, is that the woman doesn't have any confusion about what it is she's doing. She's decided to do it anyway. And if you don't like it, it doesn't give you the right to perform an act of sexual violence against her. It doesn't give you the right to do something to her that if somebody did it to your own daughter, you'd be just as likely to grab a gun and commit a vigilante act as you would be to pick up the phone and call the police. And how exactly do you pick up the phone and call the police if this is the law of the state you're in? Or worse, if we make a foolish choice about who should be the next president of the United States, it could become the law of the land itself. The point I wanted to drive home, though, is that all of this is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the book of Genesis. Now, I've said before, and anybody who's read perhaps the Christianity article that I've got on the website at http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com, will know right up front that I, as a Christian, do not feel like I have to live within any of those Levitical laws to begin with. As a Christian, I believe that Jesus came and fulfilled all of those laws. Early in his ministry, he said he was going to do it. On the cross, he told us he did it, and it's done. But that doesn't give us the right to misinterpret those laws, even if we did decide that we wanted to provide them some deference. You say we decided we didn't want to follow them, but we still were acknowledging that they were there, that maybe they would apply to Orthodox Jews. I would still make the argument that inside the Torah, this passage has nothing to do with masturbation or birth control. I'm not necessarily going to speak to the Talmud. I'm not addressing what I'd consider to be a Jewish audience. On this particular question, the people who need to be persuaded, the people who do not know what they're talking about, are Christians. So what did Jesus say? Some people may find it too easy that on questions like homosexuality, I'm quick to point out that Jesus never said two words about homosexuality, that we don't know what Jesus thought about that particular issue, and it's probably really important that we don't. It's not a coincidence. It's not an oversight. It's not meaningless. It's incredibly meaningful, especially when the same Christians who are so upset about birth control and abortion and pornography are maybe more upset about homosexual orientation than all those things put together. And Jesus had no advice to give, tellingly, no advice to give. However, that is not true on the topic of hormonal contraception. Jesus did, in one narrow occasion, not necessarily speaking to the concept of preventing pregnancy, but he nevertheless did speak to the concept of hormonal birth control, or what we call today birth control. Luke chapter 8, beginning in the middle of verse 42, at a paragraph break. As Jesus went along, the people were crowding him from every side. Among them was a woman who had suffered from severe bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all she had on doctors, but no one had been able to cure her. She came up in the crowd behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and her bleeding stopped at once. Jesus asked, Who touched me? Everyone denied it. And Peter said, Master, the people are all around you and crowding in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I knew it when the power went out of me. The woman saw that she had been found out, so she came trembling and threw herself at Jesus' feet. There in front of everybody, she told him why she touched him and how she had been healed at once. Jesus said to her, My daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That's Luke chapter 8, verse 42 through 48. 
Okay, so what in the world does that passage have to do with birth control? And how how dare me take such a liberal view towards Scripture, right? Well, again, I said from the start I didn't think the passage necessarily spoke to the concept of birth control, but it certainly spoke to the concept of hormonal contraception. It spoke directly to what is actually being debated right now in America over health insurance coverage. It's the birth control pill that can be used as a pregnancy prevention, but also can be used to regulate hormones in a woman's body that have a impact or perhaps a positive impact when things go wrong with her cycle. This woman, probably in the scripture, past menopausal, was in need of that precise type of hormonal therapy to stop her from menstruating constantly. And for her, the issue wasn't just, uh, you know, a, a matter of convenience. It wasn't just that something was medically wrong and it was a confusing mystery that she needed to solve. It wasn't just a potential risk of anemia. It was a religious problem. Because again, this is a Jewish woman talking with Jesus as a Jewish teacher. She knew and he knew that she would not be welcome in the temple court. She would not be allowed to participate actively in, in the religious life of her society because she was deemed unclean due to her menstruation. And rather than it being a three to six day piece of her regular you know, lunar month, it had become constant. And Jesus, um, perhaps almost unwittingly, as the passage tells it, healed her. If we were to provide that healing today using the equivalent power that we have through science alone, that technique would be the administration of birth control pills. Perhaps the administration of the birth control pills that you can get cheaply in an outpatient clinic or at a convenience store pharmacy that is trying to compete aggressively with the other pharmacies in town by offering this particular type of medicine at a cut rate price, therefore giving customers a great price option if they're price shopping. Or maybe the correct blend of medication, the cor correct hormonal balancing um, that could only be done as perfectly as somebody that we dare to call the great physician could do. Yeah, maybe that might require a special prescription. Maybe that isn't the $10 Walmart variety. And maybe, just maybe, the only example we have from Jesus anywhere in the Bible tells us that he's not only okay with this kind of healing, he has personally demonstrated it. So what do we do with the other question? Because it is one question to say, hey, is birth control morally acceptable from even the most strict reading of Christian texts? Well, yes, it is. Because just because birth control pills are administered, or just because they're available to be administered, does not mean anybody is going to commit some sort of sexual sin. So even if you were committed to the idea of preventing sexual sin in the most aggressive, totalitarian ways possible, birth control is almost a side issue. Rick Santorum makes a gigantic logical mistake when he says that the existence of birth control is the problem of promiscuity, that the two are synonymous with each other, or there's a cause and effect relationship there. Because I can tell you that my own personal experience as a man, well, as a boy, was that the existence of contraception actually delayed any promiscuity from me, while at the same time providing the access to some sort of protection if I was going to do something reckless. So to me, it's, the, it's something I refer to from time to time as the parachute analogy. I've heard conservatives say that you, know, they, you never should give a kid a condom 
Because giving a kid a condom is like giving a kid a parachute. And if you don't want your kid to jump out of a plane, giving them a condom is uh, empowering them to do the very thing you don't want them to do. And my answer and my mentality about condoms, which, by the way, are readily available, is this the next GOP attack? Uh, should you know, over-the-counter prophylactics be you know, rounded up and destroyed and made inaccessible the way some of the other contraceptives that we've talked about in the, in the political sphere for months now? Is that the same deal? What I've always told people is, you know, if you're a parent, you may want your kid to not do anything stupid because they think they've got a parachute. But no parent would tell their kid to jump out of the plane without the parachute. I mean, that's the thing. If I were to tell my son anything, it would be first to wait. But it would be if you're not going to be smart enough to wait, for heaven's sake, use a condom. That's a very different mindset than what you hear from the religious right. And it tells you something about the mentality. Because the idea here is that, well, we shouldn't be asking a Catholic hospital or a Catholic university to make sure that contraceptive birth control is available in the mix of things they offer. Well, why not? It's one question to say, well, maybe this is the kind of health care that's you know, suspect and questionable and we don't really need to be providing this kind of health care. Maybe this is a maintenance style of health care. And the analogy that I've heard online is that it's the equivalent of, of a health plan covering your cough drops that you've got a sore throat, it's a symptom of a cold, but we don't cover you know, cough drops the way we cover other sorts of prescription medicine. Now, although I'm guessing if there was a prescription cough drop, we probably would do something about it, and we'd probably have to because a prescription cough drop would probably have codeine in it or something quite like it. I go back to the core question I've raised all along on this issue of health coverage, and that's that I don't understand why we've forced businesses to provide this service. I mean, all the problems we're having in the debate over health care in America comes down to this pre-existing conditions, loss of insurance due to job change, or what employers can and cannot be asked to cover from the perspective of their conscience. These things are all wrapped up in the first false assumption that your employer should have any role to play in your health care to begin with. It's been a convenient lie we've told ourselves as Americans that it made sense in any way whatsoever for us to have this kind of coverage to begin with, driven through the employer. If you take the employer out of the mix, now maybe you have the negative problem of maybe we don't trust government any more than we trust employers, or maybe we trust government less than we trust employers. But now you're not dealing with a question of conscience anymore. Well, let me offer a huge challenge. I don't think we were dealing with the question of conscience in the first place. An employer, a government agency, a trade union, these are not people. These are not citizens. These are not religious believers. They don't have a conscience. It is, in fact, unconscionable for anyone to suggest that a group of people who have gathered together for the purposes of running a business, whether it's a nonprofit business like a Catholic hospital, whether it's a for-profit business like a private university like Georgetown University, no matter what we call that business, that cannot be something that has a conscience. But let's play along a little bit. Let's ask ourselves the question of what it means if the business can have a conscience. In the city where I live, we have a Catholic hospital, and they've been outraged by this whole thing. They may have calmed down a little bit since President Obama backed off the idea that they should be forced to provide this kind of coverage, or that at least the church isn't. The church isn't. The hospital may still be on the hook. And they've said all along, hey, you know what? We're an equal opportunity employer. 
We have Muslim employees, we have Christian and Jewish employees, we have non-believing employees, and we do not force our religion on these people. So why are you forcing your religion on us? And what, of course, they mean by religion is the secular notion that birth control is not a religious issue. Now, I've just walked through a very basic but very true Christian perspective on Scripture, raises big questions on whether the perspective you're hearing from some people about the religious opposition to birth control makes any sense whatsoever. But again, let's play along. Let's pretend that there is some sort of scriptural mandate. Let's assume that a, that a Catholic hospital is some sort of a quote-unquote person who can have its quote-unquote conscience offended somehow. Here's my problem. And I don't think you have to be a, a, a wise man or a great thinker to follow this. I do think, frankly, that if if this is beyond someone's ability to comprehend, then maybe you shouldn't be running for president of the United States because it's really pretty simple. If you're a Catholic hospital in the Midwest that is not imposing your values upon your employees, because that would be a violation of sort of the trust we have as equal opportunity employers and employees, that I not have to make a faith conversion in order to be an orderly in a hospital, right? But if I don't have to make a faith conversion in order to be an orderly in a hospital, then what's the big deal about providing birth control coverage? You can't control my behavior sexually through your health plan if you say publicly you're not trying to control my behavior sexually through the terms of my employment. The terms of my employment and the terms of my health plan should have a great deal of relationship to each other. Or to word it another way, this hospital had the audacity to make the claim that even the people who, who work there who aren't Catholic are most likely opposed to this kind of birth control anyway because they're so ardently pro-life. And they're pro-life because they work at a hospital. And everybody who works at a hospital loves life. And so they wouldn't use the birth control. All right, I'm calling your bluff. If that's the way you feel about your employees, if your estimation of their character and their politics is accurate, what's the problem providing the existence of the coverage? How does the existence of this element of a health plan do any harm whatsoever? And even if an employee does take advantage of it, how does that harm you? Jesus said, if any one of you is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. Any one of you, not the hospital system collectively, not the Roman Catholic Church universally and all of the financial interests it has across the world. Any one person, the individual. If one individual does something that is actually, truly, devastatingly sinful, the most important kind of sin you can commit, uh, let's say uh, being homosexual, right? I mean, Jesus never said anything about it, but if you listen to Rick Santorum, you might have the impression that that is the absolute worst thing you can possibly be. Well, I find it ironic that when Sandra Fluke was giving her testimony before the U.S. Congress about Georgetown University's policy that arbitrarily wasn't covering birth control, but was perhaps covering other male-based policies and procedures, even those that could be conceived as being potentially contraceptive in nature from a male perspective. The, one of the examples that she used was a woman who had to promise Georgetown University that she wasn't going to be engaging in premarital sex as a pre-existing condition she had to meet in order to get the prescription for the birth control pills. She told him, you don't have to worry about me getting pregnant. I'm a lesbian. There's a certain level of irony here that's 
always bothered me that if you're of a religious right wing perspective, if you're if you're in the camp that looks at a guy like Rick Santorum and said, the only problem I got with Rick Santorum for president is he's too damn liberal. If you've got that mindset, how in the world do you deal with what must be the plain and obvious logical fact that lesbians are God's chosen people? By and large, they're not getting abortions. By and large, they're not using con- you know, chemical contraceptive to, present getting, to prevent getting pregnant. They're not having premarital sex with men. They're not a bunch of homewreckers out there stealing husbands away from their, their wives. This is the kind of problem that this quote-unquote logic from the right has with it. The government could mandate that this Catholic hospital provide this kind of coverage and do nothing more than validate that hospital's self-righteous pride in how so few of its employees would bother to do what they view to be the sinful thing of using medicine to prevent pregnancy before they're ready to be pregnant. I don't see the harm in a government policy having the side effect of telling you just how right you are about just how righteous you are. Our different drummer today is performance artist Lori Anderson. And I'll make one more directive kind of emphasis toward the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page because I put a post out there on March 11th that has a clip from a TV show in the early 80s, I'm assuming, from uh, Lori Anderson doing a live performance of a track from her United States Live 1 through 4 work. And the track in particular is called Mach 20. Now, if you've never heard Mach 20 before, even if you can't stand performance artists and do not like Laurie Anderson, give her three and a half minutes here. It is well worth it. The thing I enjoy most about Laurie Anderson and other performance artists who are like her, because there's a big spectrum of performance artists, is that if you see her live in concert, you'll get it in a way that you never would if you just listened to an album. Um, And maybe in a way you never would if you just watch it on TV or watch it on the computer, which is ironically what I'm recommending here, watching on the computer something that broadcasts on TV. But it's genuinely a multimedia presentation in every conceivable way. And, and if for nothing else than the humor of Mach 20, it's, it's well worth seeing. And if you see it, you'll know 100% why it applies to any conversation about birth control. Uh, it literally is dealing with, well, the moment of conception, for want of a better word. Lori Anderson is a, a performance artist who probably began doing most of her work in the, in the 1970s. Most of us probably never heard of her until the early 1980s when the uh, song Oh Superman became a single, initially in England and to a much smaller degree in the United States. I tend to prefer her shorter works to Oh Superman, but when you see her again, when you see her live in concert, which I've done twice, if she does perform that, it's, it's an impressive multimedia display. My all-time favorite track from her is probably not Mach 20. It's probably Let X Equal X with the introductory line like, uh, I met this guy and he looked like he might have been a hat check clerk at an ice rink, which, in fact, he turned out to be. Let X Equal X. It's a sky blue sky. Satellites are out tonight. You know, just... That sort of ironic, twisted view. She once did a public service announcement, either for MTV or VH1, where she was ultimately trying to raise money for the arts community by raising awareness of how art contributes 
to our national heritage. This was during the time in the mid-1980s where a lot of social conservatives were attacking the artistic community overall as being un-American. That if you weren't George Gershwin or Norman Rockwell, you were probably un-American. And Laurie Anderson's um, little 30-second spot, she basically just read the lyrics to the famous song Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle went to London riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat, and called it macaroni. Then she said, if you can understand the meaning of those words, then you can understand anything that is being done today, even in the most avant-garde corner of the arts community. This is the kind of contributions that Laurie Anderson has made. Other tracks from her that I would recommend if you've never heard her work and just wanted to go out online and, and do some sampling. Beautiful Red Dress from the album Strange Angels. Um, there's actually an extended mix of it that I like even better, and I'm not usually a extended remix kind of guy. Sharky's Day, the lead single, and in some ways the title track of the Mr. Heartbreak CD, is another. But I personally think there's a lot of rewards, uh, even in the hit-or-miss nature of listening to what's supposed to be a, an audiovisual presentation, in the 4-CD set, formerly 5-LP set, United States Live 1 through 4. So the other thing about Lori Anderson that I think is worth calling her out and giving her some credit is the inventiveness with which she performs. She isn't just a found sound kind of artist where she's taking the things that are around her. She's actually been given credit on Wikipedia, grade that on the Wikipedia scale for um, accuracy, with a couple of key experimental musical instruments, a tape bow violin uh, created by Lori Anderson in 1977, uses recorded magnetic tape in place of the traditional horsehair strings of the, strands of the bow, creating a unique sound, and a talking stick. A talking stick is a six-foot-long baton-like MIDI controller, a MIDI controller, and she used this on her uh, Moby Dick tour, 1990-2000. Here's a quote from the program. The talking stick is a new instrument that I designed in collaboration with a team from Interval Research and Bob Bilecki. It is a wireless instrument that can access and replicate any sound. It works on the principle of granular synthesis. This is the technique of breaking sound into tiny segments called grains and then playing them back in different ways. The computer rearranges the sound fragments into continuous strings or random clusters that are played back in overlapping sequences to create new textures. The grains are very short, a few hundredths of a second. Granular synthesis can sound smooth or choppy depending on the size of the grain and the rate at which they're played. The grains are like film frames. If you slow them down enough, you begin to hear them separately. The other thing that she's given credit for is one of the things that I actually found off-putting, a real adjustment I had to make when first listening to the United States live recording, and that's her use of voice filtering. It takes a little bit of adjustment as a listener if you've only heard um, her singing in her normal voice or her chanting or reciting poetry in her normal voice to get used to things that she does to make her voice very childlike and screechy or very deep and masculine. But these are among the tools that she has available to her, being someone who also plays violin and keyboard. Lori Anderson is an acquired taste, I'll grant. But if you only have time for the Mach 20 video, it's worth giving it the time on this topic. Because one of the things that I think we fail to recognize, and the whole question about both birth control and abortion, we don't do a good enough job of challenging centuries-old false presumptions. There are things that someone like Thomas Aquinas might have presumed to be morally true 
based on the quality of the science he had available to him. I firmly believe he would offer a different opinion today, and he would have offered a different opinion then if he'd had the science we currently have available to us. The wisest men in the history of the faith have been scientists who were also Christians. These were people who perceived that they had been given a book of scripture, a book of parables and stories about God that was one revelation, and that it was equally balanced by the other revelation of the creation in which we live. So at a time when humanity assumed that a woman brought nothing to the reproductive process except a nest, and that a man, when he had sexual relations with a woman, was not placing part of the genetic process into her, but was actually planting a seed. There was a time in which people believed that Onan, for example, had spilled one seed on the ground, that his ejaculate only had one thing in it, and that thing wasn't sperm. That thing was zygote. It was combination of sperm and egg. It was fully human, fully human but too tiny to see. And the woman's job was simply to grow that humanity into something that could be viable after birth. We now know that's not true. We now know that if the sin of onanism is the death of potential life based on the uh, sexual contribution that the man makes not succeeding in creating an egg, then men commit hundreds of thousands of acts of murder every time they ejaculate. So you got to consider that with some of the almost humorous counter laws that have been produced you know, proposed in legislatures in places like Virginia, where the sarcasm is directed toward people who think that the approach that the Republican Party is proposing on issues like birth control and abortion is because of the damage that is done to God's will that everyone have as many kids as humanly possible, saying, well, you know what, every time the man spills his seeds somewhere other than inside a woman's vagina, he's also violating God's will to the exact same degree. This is, in fact, the sin of Onan. We've got to do a better job of owning it. But one of the ways that Laurie Anderson called this to our attention, even something like 30 years ago, was to ask us to come up with a mental image of 300,000 or more sperm, the size of salmon, swimming across the Pacific coast. And she asked the question, spoiler alert, she asked the question, that if these, instead of being the size of salmon, were the size of whales, and these whales were swimming across the Pacific Ocean, you know, covering that ground at a speed of Mach 20, arriving in Japanese coastal waters in just under 45 minutes, how would they be perceived? They might be perceived as something around which the Japanese government would like to place a barrier. Maybe that would be a barrier made out of rubber or latex, or chemicals, or hormones. But it would be reasonable for the government of Japan to say, I get to decide when the whales invade my coastline, if at all humanly possible. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, the website has show notes enabled at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com, and I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to what I hope is not an unbearably noisy episode from a background ambient sound perspective.